Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with director, choreographer, tap dancer, music theater professor, and certified tag teacher, Anne Bergeron. And what's a certified tag teacher, you might be asking yourself? Well, it's not related to World Chase Tag or the professional version of the playground game you played at recess as a kid, because yes, that's really a thing now. Tag is actually an acronym and stands for Teaching with Acoustical Guidance. And it's a form of teaching that involves providing positive reinforcement to build up motor skills and minimizes the judgment and nagging that can often be a part of the learning process otherwise. If you have a dog and are familiar with clicker training, it's basically that, but for humans. I know, at first, that might sound either ridiculous, hilarious, or demeaning, but I first heard about this on an episode of the Hidden Brain podcast, where a surgeon was describing how effective this was for teaching surgical residents which made me question my initial reaction and start to wonder if this might be a useful teaching tool in the arts as well. Believe it or not, there are some musicians who are already using this approach, but I've never had anyone from the dance world on the podcast, so this seemed like it might be a good opportunity to do a bit of cross-training, as it were, and explore this topic with Anne. My kids had wanted a dog for many years, and about six years ago, they finally wore us down and convinced us to get a puppy and neither my wife or I had any real dog or puppy training experience previously so when it came time to train our puppy we read some books we watched a bunch of YouTube videos to try to figure out what we were doing and one of the things we came across pretty early on was Mm -hmm. clicker training Mm -hmm. which if I understand correctly is, is sort of a way of reinforcing desired behaviors and making it really clear and easy for the dog to understand when they've done something correctly that we want them to continue to do more of. I have to confess that we never really stuck with the actual clicker Mm -hmm. and the training, but the idea stuck in my head. And so I came across this Hidden Brain podcast episode a couple years back on clicker training for humans, which Mm -hmm. at first I thought was kind of hilarious. Uh, But then Mm -hmm. as I listened to the episode and understood how it was being applied to surgical training and heard the rationale for this type of training, it all made pretty good sense to me. And it made me wonder if this was something worth exploring more broadly as a method for teaching motor skills in other domains like sports and music and so forth. 
So it's been a couple years since we initially had this exchange of emails, but this idea of clicker training popped up onto my radar again maybe a month or two ago. And so I wanted to get back in touch and ask you more about this kind of learning and also find out how you have incorporated this into your own teaching and how it might benefit other teachers and learners as well. And so I wonder if maybe a good place to start might just be to ask you to share a little bit about yourself, like your background, what you do currently, and how you first encountered or got involved in this particular method of learning and teaching. Well, my career, most of my career has been teaching at the University of Minnesota in a musical theater acting and dance program. And so I kind of encountered this just sort of like was introduced to it by the same way you were by training my dogs. I had a a puppy, a border terrier puppy, and I took him to a traditional class. And then within the first five minutes doing the traditional sort of punishment style training, he sat down and looked at me and wouldn't move. And I thought, okay. And I picked him up and I left the class and I started to do my research and I figured there had to be a better way. And so that took me to clicker training. And I went to clicker expo, tried to learn as much as I possibly could, brought it home, worked with him. And he, it was like night and day because the, the tag teaching or the clicker training really, it becomes a game. You know, it's kind of like uh, gamifying gamifying learning, right? Because the uh, organism, the dog, the person, the exotic species are always trying to figure out what the answers are. Now, with humans, we get to tell them what the answers are, which is fun, right? So that's kind of how I transferred as I was working with my dogs. And I started, I met up with, um, at the Clicker Expo with uh, Teresa McKeon and Joan Orr who were the founders of Tag Teach International. And we started having these discussions because Teresa had been using this with her gymnasts. And I thought, wow, okay, this is super cool. And I was watching the videos and seeing how the students were responding to the idea of working towards a very, very specific goal that's not broad, like it's very, very specific in like toes pointed, shoulders to ears. And looking at those very specific instructions in terms of motor skills and being able to reinforce exactly the moment when that motor skill was successful, as opposed to one of the things we say with tag teaching is tag, don't nag. So, you know, so many times, you know, don't do this, don't do this. No, 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 that's not what I want, right? What do you want? The idea is what do you want? And then the teacher has to really define what the yes is. And then to be able to mark that very moment of success. So we're setting up these moments of success for the student. So I thought, oh, that's pretty exciting. I'm going to take this home, right? As a dance teacher, I thought there are opportunities for me to use this and see how it goes. Fortunately, I was tenured by that time. (laughs) And I was, and, and Teresa sent me a box of clickers. And I thought, Let's go. Let's just go for it. And I went into the classroom and I told the students, I said, hey, you're my guinea pigs. Let's do this. Just just try this. I don't, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't you know. I've never done this before. Let's work together and let's see what happens. And so that was kind of the beginning of it. So I started off sort of slowly and gradually. And as I started to work with my students more and more and got a little bit better at creating the tag points and the whole the whole genre of 
tag teach in the dance class, the things that I discovered were really super positive. And you, as a performance psychologist, I see how you were interested in this because what it did for the students was get them out of the negativity. It was getting them out of their heads in terms of every time they didn't succeed. I mean, you know how that is, right? When musicians, they don't succeed and they dwell, they dwell on the no. They dwell on what they didn't do, not on focusing on what they want to do, what the goal is. And so it took, for most of these students, it took about two or three years to get them to the point where they could recognize and reassess a non-success as opposed to failure or thinking of it as failure, right? And then keep working towards the goal and also learning how to actually self-approximate their goals, break down the behaviors into smaller and smaller pieces for themselves. I start doing setting up those goals, those tag points, but I call this, you know, just tag thinking is when a student can actually self-approximate the progression towards their goals. I, I found that took about three years to happen, but it was really cool. What I found was just overall happier, more self-confident and more risky and creative artists, which for me was just really exciting. And to see them sort of just psychologically healthier, because as you know, artists are pretty hard on themselves, right? And so um, for me, that was, for me, that's was a really important thing about how tag teach was successful for me as a teacher. I am now retired, <laughs> but I'm very interested in now integrating the tag teach work that I did with my dance students and my acting students. We actually use it for acting too, any movement skills. And uh, we're kind of, I'm working with different fields now into trying to integrate this and, and I'm seeing right now the reason I want this to happen is the psychological reasons. Because it's bringing, um, as you know, young people have many challenges these days. And I think getting them to think in this new, in this, it's not new, but getting them to think this way habitually has really helped their wellness. So for me right now, I think that's, that's why I think this work is really important. Definitely want to explore the the psychological aspect of things and how it changes the the experience of learning and and it sounds even like the emotional experience of learning. Mm -hmm. But maybe a good place to start, and some of this might be a little bit scattered and disorganized because there's going to be a bunch okay. of random things that pop into my <laughs> sure. head at various That's points. That's okay. But I wonder if if maybe the first thing to do would just be to ask you whether in the context of music theater or acting, like what's an example of what this would look like? Like what would teaching somebody in this way look like with a specific skill? Okay, so with a specific dance skill, for instance, to do a pirouette, right? Turning right? this. When we look at the behavior itself, there are actually about 21 component parts to doing a proper pirouette. And traditionally, the teacher would go, do this and demonstrate. And then, no, no, don't do it that way. Do that. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of no, a lot of nagging, a lot of not succeeding, as opposed to, okay, right now, we're going to focus on getting the eyes around, spotting the eyes back around to the front. And maybe we're going to just do those in quarter turns. We're not going to try to go all the way around the first time. We're going to go a quarter and focus and focus and focus. And then we work on the eyes. And when the eyes become known with body memory, right, with physical memory, then we go on to the next thing. Now we're going to do the placement of the, the toe in relationship to the knee. And we work on that. 
and that becomes a tag point. Or and then we work on the placement of exactly when the arms are going to come in. Tag. Tag, right? And so we break down the whole behavior, which is huge because it's a lot of component parts, but make it very clear. It's pretty analytical. You have to, as a teacher, be able to break the behavior down. But for the student, it's like, oh, I know what you want. I know exactly what you want. And that, I think, for so many of us, for all of us as learners, we get so frustrated when our teachers go, well, don't do that. Yeah. It's like, no. What do you want? That's the question that keeps coming up. What do you want? And so if you can really specify what we do want, it becomes a lot easier for the learner to focus on that. Also with Tag Teach, I'm being very wordy right now, but with Tag Teach, what we do is we actually funnel down the ideas. We create instructions. So this is why we're doing this. And then we we narrow it down. And at the very bottom of this funnel, we create what we call the tag point. And the tag point must be five words or less. So we get rid of, we try to get rid of all the blah, 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 blah. Okay, now go. We take the idea and then we narrow it down to the instructions and then we narrow it down to the actual tag point. And that gives the student really specific focus. So initially you would explain to the student the skill that they're trying to learn, but then eventually for them to focus on in the process of doing it, the tag, sorry, the phrase or the point, I forget the terminology, but the tag point would be mm-hmm. five words, kind of like a, not a mantra per se, but just like a really honed in focus Absolutely. on what to keep in mind Absolutely. that won't overwhelm them in the moment. Correct. Totani. Okay. And I can explain up here, I can explain why we need to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And then I can say the instructions are when you start the pirouette, take the totani. The tag point is totani. So like you said, it is kind of a mantra. It's, it gives a very specific focus to the to the action. And how does that get used? Like what what is like where does the tag point come into play? So we actually use the clickers. And exactly at the moment, just like a dolphin that's jumping up high, right? And when they use the whistles, the whistle happens at the point at the apex of the jump. And the whistle is the bridge marker that tells the dolphin, now I can go back and I will be rewarded for that. What we've discovered, and this is the fun part about working with humans, and we're doing a lot of studies on this too, I think, because I am not a scientist. I come from the arts. but And so all my observations are obviously empirical. But it is crossing over to the science world now, and they are starting to do a lot more studies on why this works in terms of uh, the neuroscientist is looking at why is this working. We know it works. I mean, empirically, as artists, we know it works. We're just now we're trying to get a little bit more scientific about it. But we discovered very, very quickly with humans is they didn't need the primary reinforcer. They didn't need the primary enforcer of food, or in the case of children, we were giving them, you know, beads or something with every successful behavior. What we discovered, though, that with most humans. Being right is enough, right? The yes is enough. That's all we want. It's like, okay, without judgment. And that's a huge part of it. When you get the yes with the clicker, it's like, okay, good. Again, I want, I want to do it again. It's not, oh, that was so good. And we don't have to sugarcoat it or you know, do all that other emotional stuff when we're trying to please our teacher or that kind of stuff. It's just very narrowed down to the information. And as learners, we like just that information. 
So that's that's a really positive. So so basically, what I would do is I would start working on a tag point, demonstrate it on because it's really hard to do with it. You can't do it in a group of twenty students, right? But I can demonstrate it on one student, and we do what's called peer tagging, where they will go off, pair up, and they will tag each other and then reverse. Amazingly enough, they know which one's theirs, even if you've got all these these clickers going on in the same room, just like the dogs. You can do this. We do this at Clicker Expo. We take a bunch of dogs. Your dog knows which one belongs to him. That's pretty wild. And the nice thing about doing that as well is by watching each other, they learn to teach because their eyes, the perception of what is happening gets sharper. And by reversing that, they really learn to teach. That's, that's one benefit. The second benefit is by tagging each other, for success, they get very invested in each other's success, which I have found has been, you know, probably, as you know, in the dance world, it's very competitive. It's very, you know, this side looks and comparing me to everybody else and right. And it's always been like that. So to kind of get them out of that headspace and get them into the place where they're there to help each other creates a different energy in the classroom. So for me, as a teaching at the university for about 40 years, and so it just made going to work that much more fun because the students were happier. You know, it was just it was really wonderful. And so it goes back and forth between the people and my dogs. It's all the same. You know, it makes my, when I pick up a clicker, my dogs are like, yeah, let's go. Right. They know the clicker is their chance to, to make choices, to be creative, actually be creative, which is super cool. Because they're trying to figure out what you want. With dogs, we call this shaping, where we'll bring a novel stimulus into the room and just see what they do. A dog that's been trained to shape will look at that thing and then try, just start trying things out, right? Until you click it. Oh, okay, that's cool. See if I can make them do that again, right? For people, I think it opens up creativity because they're much more willing to take the risks. Can you say more about that in terms of like what that would look like? I mean, I, the example makes me understand yeah. that in the context of dog training, yeah, they're just trying to do yeah. things, yeah, hoping yeah. that one of those is a desired behavior. But yeah, yes, like yes. You, you mentioned earlier, more risk-taking artists. Mm-hmm. Can you, yeah, can you paint a picture of that? I, I think it happens because the fear of not doing it perfect goes away because they're not going to get reprimanded by the teacher for you. And you know as well as I do that some of the most beautiful things come up as mistakes. They're mistakes and we're like, yes, hold on to that, right? It's not what we, I mean, beyond what the teacher would have come up with, right? And that the student in that, in that zone, in that place where they feel free to not be perfect, they often come up with amazing, amazing things. And so creating that place in their head, I think, is just really a great place to be, not constantly fearing that they're not going to be perfect. It's a way of thinking. It's not... You know, it takes practice just like anything. So maybe what I should ask first is if you could say a little more about how this changes the student's emotional experience of learning. You you kind of started alluding to how, you know, there isn't as much of this sort of negative judgment involved in Mm -hmm. teaching. And, you know, words have been stripped away and there's not as much explanation. There's also not as much criticism, it sounds like. Um, And that was one of the things that kind of stuck out to me most listening to that episode where the physician was talking about how his students 
weren't as afraid of getting yelled at um, yeah, and being exactly. negatively yeah. judged by their instructors. Yeah. And, yeah. and I wonder if you could kind of explain how, how that comes to be. You know how sometimes when you make probably when you were a child and your teacher was looking over you and just waiting for you to make a mistake or you, you were perceiving my teacher's watching me waiting for me to make a mistake. And that's constantly going on in your head. Right. And that makes you make a mistake. It's that same thing. Like Dr. Levy says, you know, we're working on eggplants and pineapples and watermelons. We're not, and that's where we start, right? Until we can build those skills. So yeah, that fear of, of, of if the teacher breaks the behavior down in small enough increments so that the student can be successful. And then, and then you don't say, oh, you really messed that up. <laughs> you don't say that. You just say, okay, let's change the criteria. Your new tag point is, and as a teacher, you back off the criteria and the student doesn't even know to know that you're backing off the criteria. They're just, it's a new criteria. So it's not a judgment to say, oh, you didn't do that very well. So I have to make it easier. <laughs> oh, right. So meaning if, if a skill was, was too complex, it hadn't been broken down yeah. into small enough increments. Yeah. And then you take a responsibility as a teacher to say, okay, how can I break that down into smaller pieces so that my student can be successful? Without so without passing judgment on the student, oh, you weren't able to do that. I need to make it easier for you. You don't stay say stuff like that, right? You just say, okay, let's change change the tag point, and you have to analyze it and break it down and create a new uh, new tag point that you believe that that student can be successful at, and then repeat that a few times. And then if they're successful, then you just you know move it up, step it up a little more. Yeah, this might be me being too curious about the details of this, but how many? I don't even want to use the word failures, but like how many like misses or incorrect repetitions does one get before the tag? You know, there's changes? not a perfect number. You want to make sure that your student doesn't get frustrated, right? So if you create a tag point and they do it and they don't get tagged and they don't get tagged and they don't get tagged like eight times, that's not good. They're going to shut down just like your dog. You see your dog walk away. They're frustrated right? because they don't know what you, and it's just, you think about your dog. You're not giving them the tag, the click. They don't know what you want. They're trying to figure out what what do I need to do to get the click and get the food? And they'll just walk away. <laughs> they don't want to play the game anymore. So it's the same thing with people. You know, we have to re- we have to listen to them. We have to watch them. We have to listen with our eyes sometimes and take those physical cues. Cause some some students are persistent and they're they're driven by that, and some are not. Like we also we say in the dog training business, train the dog in front of you, you know, train the organism in front of you. And as much as we can listen with our eyes and our hearts, and our, you know, everything, we can be better teachers. You know? But again, it's, it's that it, process of breaking things down it does take some time to. Um, one of the things I always talk about with Teresa is that um, for me as a, as a theater person, as a dance person, and it's a music person. I'm a tap dancer, so I, I that's my musical instrument. We improvise. We try to build our skills so that we can go into a situation and roll with the punches and to create something, right? That's part of our training. We try improvisation is part of our training. And I think by thinking of our teaching as improvisation, it's like, oh, okay, I can take these skills. I'm gonna play in the moment, I'm gonna listen to my learner and make choices that hopefully serve my learner. Not, I'm going in with this lesson plan and this is what we're going to do. Because that often doesn't, many, many times does not work, right? The fixed, this is my lesson plan. You know that. 
<laughs> Speaking of improvisation, I'm curious how, like, you used the word self-approximate goals earlier, which I'm also curious about as a concept. Okay. I'm, I'm wondering, like, how close does the learner's behavior have to be to what's optimal or ideal? I mean, does that change? I mean, do the standards change as the skill becomes better learned or if the needs to be more precise change? Or I'm wondering yeah, if that I mean, evolves. From class to class, that evolves. But for instance, this is an example. So I would have um, a class where I had a certain set of movements that it was in chat class. And the students in the class were at different learning levels. I mean, some learned slower and had really had to repeat, repeat. Some would get it right away. And so I would say is, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to move across the floor and we're going to do X. You choose, here are four, four different criteria that you can use to do this exercise. A, B, C, D, four different levels of complexity. And I would say, you know, and each one is as good as the other. I'm not going to judge you on what you choose. Choose what feels good to you. And then when you feel like you've got that one, you can move on to the next one. But you get to choose that. And what I would often discover is choice. Well, we're learning, too, that choice is really important for the learner. And so by feeling, oh, I'm not going to be judged if I do it the easiest way. It's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this. And then they're rewarded by their success. And they're willing to move. By the time they move, I give them those four options. I move them across the floor. They all go across. They all go across. They all go across. They all go across. By four times, they're all doing the same skill. They just all got there differently. Some of them started with A, B, C, D. Some of them started with D and just got more refined. Some of them started with A. A went to B, went to C, backed up to B, backed up to C. Oh, back to B. Oh, back to C. Okay, now I can do D. And they were able to choose those choices and set themselves up for success. So that's kind of the idea of self-approximating. And then once once they kind of got the hang of that, of me giving them four options, then sometimes they could actually do it themselves. Do a pirouette. This time I'm just going to hit my perfect spot. This time I'm really going to think about zipping up my center. This time I'm going to really think about embracing the beach ball, whatever, you know but that they could really focus on one thing at a time and they would go across the floor and I would say, okay, what was your tag point? Each of you choose your own tag point for this time across the floor. And they would know what they need to work on and they would just pick that and then we just tell me what it was. So that's kind of the self-approximating thing. So does that relate to being better at teaching oneself, essentially, during practice? It should. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does because they, when they're, get to go in the studio and work themselves they go oh okay i can break this down but they learn that they can approximate for themselves so when they're working out at the classroom they learn to do that as a, just a, a skill they do naturally which is great i'm curious about how it comes together right because i think you mentioned with the pirouette there's 21 potential tag points and there might even be more given there's probably more yeah right. yeah those are um, the only ones i've been able to break down like it, what is there a particular process and it sounds like it's very organic and depends on the student and, and how they yeah, learn and where yeah, they're at with things yeah. but i'm yeah. curious about the process of these individual components of skills then turning right. into a seamless whole right and how it gets right. inserted into the so basically you and, you build on them it's like it's like back chaining a behavior for your dogs you start you back chain and you build and you build and you build so it's an additive process so once it's 
the body knowledge is there, then you add on the next thing, then you add on the next thing so that they, they own this before they do this. And then they, right. Oh, that's not working. Let's, let's go back to this folk focusing on this. So you can, you can keep doing this or you can go back up, you know, get to those key component parts and make sure that those are really owned before you expect, before you expect the other stuff, as opposed to saying, okay, do this. Okay. Oh, well, that wasn't very good. Do it like me. Or do it like Susie or do it like Fred, right? Do students seem to need a rationale for, for this type of teaching or do they just dive right in or like, how does it work with? Well, kind of most of my them? students, once we've done it, they're like, can we, can we, can we tag teach this thing that we've been working on? They'll ask me and I say, sure. And I'll bring them in the clickers and we'll do a session. You know, I don't do it for the whole class, but. Um, we'll do it for a specific thing that they're all working. We really need to work on this. And they'll say, we really need to work on this. Bring in the clickers. And we'll just focus like 15, 20 minutes on that particular skill or getting this particular part of this particular skill. And they also get really good at watching each other and analyzing, oh, so-and-so. And And they'll like help each other out because to see what the component part is that isn't fitting together. So it does... Kind of helps train the te- you know, the students to be teachers, which is a real plus, I think. Am I understanding that this is the sort of thing that wouldn't necessarily be used all the time, but maybe for particularly challenging skills? Yeah, yeah, no, it would be it would be pretty tedious, I think, to use it all the time in a dance class. And you know, when you've got a, a class of fully functioning, passionate adults that are trying to to dance, you, you, it would be too tedious because you know it really breaks things down. So for me, it wasn't, you would, I would never do a whole class with it, but just particular skills that we would work on just for that day. Is that one of the challenges for the, for the teacher trying to break skills down? I mean, was it an adjustment for you or did it, you already kind of think in those terms or? Well, I kind of thought in those terms because of the dog training. So the do- it all crosses, it's all, it's all the same, right? In terms of, you know, how am I going to get, this behavior from my dog, am I going to back chain it? I'm going to start from the end or how am I, you know, what's the best way? Do I get him like, do I get him to just acknowledge the thing or to, to look at me, you know, just small, small little behaviors when you're starting with your dogs. I mean, you're, you're clicking them for just flicking their eyes and looking at you. You're really capturing the very smallest moments. And so, yeah, so it's basically, you know, by doing the dog training, you do start learning, oh, how do I make this successful? How do I communicate that this is what I want? It's a little different because we don't have language of animals until those words become cues. With humans, we can generally you know, bypass some of that just because we do have words to work with. And with some humans, we don't have words to work with, and that's why it works with them. Because the, the words, you know, working with the autistic children, sometimes the words are just too much. Right, but we can keep it really, really simple, and this creates this. This creates the success. Yeah, so that, that those applications are just you know we're discovering more and more. It's so new, still, but and finding more ways and more ways to apply it. Um, Teresa does all sorts of amazing work uh, with working with fishermen on the boats up in Alaska to try to, to get them to do their procedures to really lock them down for safety their injuries have just plummeted it's been great for them and they're proud you know they're proud when they're good 
And that's cool. Get these guys to be, yeah, okay, cool. I was, I, I got, I did this, you know, and I was successful and I get a little pin on my hat. <laughs> so there's all sorts of amazing applications. This is making me think also of habit correction. One of the questions I often get from both teachers and learners is, mm-hmm. you know, I've been doing things this way for a long time without realizing it. And now it's really hard to change and, and I can mm-hmm. change it when I'm thinking about it. But then when I'm not thinking about it, it goes back to the old habits. Uh, how does this relate maybe to, to changing habits? Substitution. So if we keep thinking, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. It's like, and this is just a self thing, but you know, when you tell a teenager not to do something, what are they going to do? When you tell them not to do something, what you've done is you've created the focus for that, that thing not to do. Right. And so that even though they're like, Oh, that's where their focus becomes. And so if with habits, when we think, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that thing, don't do that thing. Well, we're still thinking about that thing. So it's like, it's like when we train our animals, right? Instead of yelling at them and for barking, we teach them on cue how to be quiet. Oh, now you get to bark. Now you get to be quiet. Now you get to bark. Now you get to be quiet, right? So, so it's that idea of how you how do you figure out ways to reward uh, substituted behavior for the old behavior and make that oh, that's a point of success. Not that I failed when I did this other thing, but I succeeded when I did this substitute behavior. Is that kind of what it would look like? I mean, because what you describe now with a dog is getting them to do the undesired behavior on cue as well as the desired behavior on cue. I mean, is that what it would look like with the tag teaching also? Because it reminds me a little bit of, there's a little bit of research on these different types of habit extinction protocols mm-hmm. where one of them involves exaggerating the error in the mm-hmm. old way and the other protocol involves kind of like alternating and contrasting the desired behavior and the undesired behavior. So they're a little bit more consciously accessible. Um, Is that related in some way to how it could be? Yeah, it could be. Yeah. That it's clear that this is this and this is this. And then once you start making this choice and that becomes hat, then becomes the new habit. And that's what we want, right? We want it to become new habit. You mentioned that it took a while for your students to get to a certain point of familiarity or comfort with this way of learning. I'm curious what some of the challenges might have been or, or what, are, what are some of the things that, that take time to, to develop or get better at? The thing that takes the most time for them to do is to, I call it, it's kind of a Zen thing, but it's just touch and go. That you acknowledge that you didn't succeed and you're like, whatever, and you move on. As opposed to, I didn't succeed, <sighs> I'm awful. I'll never get that, I'll, you know, and just dwelling in that place. I've found, you know, in the, certainly in the last 15 years or so, they dwell on that because they're told when they're children that they need to be perfect, which has been very, very difficult to untie those knots. This really helps to really to try to untie those knots that are like, I have to be perfect. That stress, that anxiety that they bring in with them is pretty phenomenal right now you've probably seen that with some of your students and so if we can get them to that point where they acknowledge it but it it does it's not a personal judgment on them and they get real and it's so fun because i can see it in their eyes i'll say yes and i'll point to them i'll say that was awesome what you just did and it was nothing that they did it was just that they failed and then they just 
let it go. I can see, I can see them sort of just that moment of letting go. You can, you can see it in the body and then moving on. And I would, I would always tag, actually vocally tag that. Yes. You just let it go. Good for you. So I would try to tag that, that moment of letting go because I thought that was really important. But again, that takes like anything, the letting go takes practice too. And so I would, I would say for most of them who got really good at it, it would take a couple of years of making it habit, like you said, making it. So the habit, the old habit was, I'm going to get down on myself. You know, if I get down on myself, then I don't know, then people will know that I know that I'm bad. You know what I'm saying? That whole, those stories that the artists have in their heads. And so getting out of that habit and celebrating their successes. And often I would do something called spontaneous combustion. <laughs> Where if a student achieved something that they've been working on and working on and working on, I would say, please just jump up and down and scream and say, yes, yes, me, you know, just go for it. And then we will, we will join you in that celebration. So those are fun moments too. Did you find the, the letting go becoming easier? I mean, it's sort of a rhetorical question. I'm assuming I know what the answer is, but did you find that really transferring to performance too? Because one of the things that, think is is challenging on stage is we get so accustomed to this habit of analyzing critiquing judging dwelling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that it's difficult to not do that on stage too especially when the stakes are higher at that point absolutely and if this becomes a habit that takes some time in the practice room i'm assuming that that transfers to the stage as well i mean was yes. there some observation of that it does absolutely um i would say a lot of the performers felt like you know once because they weren't so afraid of failing, it got rid of a lot of that anxiety. What happens? What happens if I make a mistake? I'm going to be okay. I mean, I know in the music world, it's so, you know, it's, but, you know, they're going to be okay, right? And I know it's hard, you know, getting to their classes and making the cut and all that kind of good stuff that happens. But it does, it gives them a, a I, I would say in some interviews that I had from the students, it gives them a freedom a little bit to get out of that idea that they must be perfect all the time. <laughs> well, in theory, it seems like it would naturally cultivate this habit of, of aiming for excellence as opposed to mm-hmm. trying to avoid screwing up, which I imagine yes. if that's something that's reinforced yes. and practiced daily, yes. even mentally, it yeah. would yeah. naturally translate a little bit. Um, yeah, on stage. absolutely. You had mentioned tagging something verbally. And I mean, is there... Mm-hmm a meaningful difference between tagging verbally versus with the clicker or like, is it important that one do it in a certain way if it's verbal or. It depends on kind of what it is. Um, if it's a very specific physical action, we find that the actual clicker is better, right? Because it's non-judgmental because it doesn't have the emotional baggage that goes with it. Yes. Does have some emotional baggage. But if you don't have a clicker in your hand and you see something that was awesome, right? You just, it still works. And, and, and sometimes you do use words. It's not as, for the ant, working with humans, it's a little bit more flexible because as humans, we know the click means yes, the yes means yes, the snap means yes, so, you know, whatever we create, whatever our bridge marker is, we can, we can say, okay, yeah, all those things mean yes. So that's great. Consistency with the animals is a little bit more important because it's always the same. Even when we say yes to our dogs, it's different. We're bringing emotional value. Yes. Yes. That's judgment, right? 
Yes. All those are three different judgments and, and the dog might not recognize and in the human, you see that how the human responds to that, those three different options, the click becomes information. And that's why it's a little bit pure. Having done this for a long time now, maybe you've forgotten some of these things, but were there any particular frustrations or challenges that you experienced when you were new to this and just learning it? Um, just learning to break stuff down. Sometimes we get frustrated because I was like, in my mind, this is how it worked, right? And then I would put it on the bodies and it's like, oh, there's more steps. I need to get a better eye. I need to be able to break it down into smaller parts. And that just becomes practice. It's, it's hard at first because we're so used to seeing the big picture and that's not the way I was taught. You know, the way I was taught was do what I do <laughs> kind of thing and not being able to break it down more systematically. There was none of that, you know, analysis that I can think of, except for, you know, when we did labonitation and we had to break the behavior down and to very be able to diagram everything we did for dance, but that wasn't carried over into the classroom. That was probably the, the hardest part is to get to the point where I could be more successful with that. In terms of the students, rarely, maybe a couple students just, I think just they just didn't want to be treated like dogs. But that's okay, you know. You don't have to use it. You don't, you don't have to do it. It's okay. It's cool. But for some of them, there, the, most of them was just like, well, and, and I would also say to them, you know, when I first came in, it's like, okay, first of all, you have to understand that my dogs are like the center of my universe and I love them so much. And I working with my dogs and seeing how much happier they are and how they love to learn and how, well, of course they were already smart. We just had to communicate. I just had to find the way to communicate with them positively so that they wanted to work with me. I said, so that's the foundation of all this. The fact that I really love my dogs and I really love you guys too. So I want you to be happy too. <laughs> so that's why I'm doing this, you know, and I think, I think by telling them that by training you like dogs, I'm not degrading you by any means. I'm elevating you. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know if you knew about, did you hear about that show that was in the UK? A lot of controversy about it. Train your baby like a dog. Oh yeah. They titled the show, train your baby like a dog because they were using tag teacher positive reinforcement with babies, which was very, very successful. But the company decided they were going to call the show Train Your Baby Like a Dog. So that met up with a lot of <laughs> controversy, shall we say. Yeah, because I imagine unless someone understands the rationale and, and what the benefits of this are, it yeah. does come across, I think, naturally sure. as being a little yeah. bit demeaning. <laughs> it's operant conditioning. Right. Across a species, it's not it's not species specific. Are there things that I should have asked about that I forgot to, or that I didn't oh, wow. know to ask? Oh, okay. So I'm going to cross this over into. I talked to you about Chat.com. So it's the convergence of human and animal training and technology. So we've got behavior analysis, animal trainers, and high tech people coming together to brainstorm and finding out how we can contribute to each other's work. And it's been really fantastic, right? Because we're learning so much about training humans by training animals and about training animals by what we're doing with humans and how we're using the technology, integrating technology into this learning process. And it's pretty exciting. It's pretty fascinating. But I spoke at it a couple of years ago. And one of the wonderful things I got to do was just 
through connections through former, former tap dance students who became a, a dolphin trainer. I was able to go down to SeaWorld San Antonio and I got to spend two days there with the trainers watching, just, just observing. I wanted to see what the crossovers were in terms of training with these amazing species and how it was like working with my dancers. And so I got to observe, it was amazing. I think I got to watch every, every species that they had just about um, being trained. And the coolest thing was when I went to the orchid training session, because this is what I was really curious about. Does this training, because of the nature of it, allow for creativity? And one of the first sessions I went to was their creativity session. They actually have a signal, means showing me, show me something new. And they did. It was amazing. And if it was something cool, they would capture it as a behavior. So for me, the fact, this is so cool. If we can train a killer whale to think on its own and to come up with something new, it means we're not beating them with a stick to get to do these things, right? Obviously, that's not the way these orcas were trained. They had creativity. They were showing joy. They were having fun trying to come up with new stuff. I thought that was pretty cool. And so when I came back, I had that signal. I used the same signal with my dancers in the middle of class. I would give them that signal and they just have to show me something. So that idea that this freedom from perfection opens them up to creativity. I think that's a big piece of the picture. I can see how this would seem to fit really nicely around training or problem solving technical issues, but I'm sure there are some people who might hear about this and be like, okay, I could see how this would be useful for technical issues. How does this right. relate to right. cultivating more artistry or more creative right. behaviors? And I think those are the two sides of the coin. It really does help the, the specific technical stuff. And then once you own that technical stuff, right, it's the improvisation thing. You have to be a master at the technical stuff before then you can take, the, take that and then improvise on it. This is the way it is. So it's two sides of the coin. And I think very beautifully, it does help both things, the technical side and the creative side. If someone were interested in getting more involved in this, and I don't even mean in terms of getting involved in the organization or taking any training, but if it was something they wanted to, just out of curiosity, maybe explore or experiment with on their own, is there a low investment way of doing that just to kind of itch their curiosities or... Yeah, um, they go to the Tag Teach International website, and there is actually sort of a primary course there that, that they can do for free to really introduce them to the concepts. And then if they want to dig deeper, they can dig deeper, but they can start off with those simple concepts and just try it on for size, you know, and see how it works. And once they start getting, and there's some great videos out there too. Of people working with their children to swim or teach. Uh, there's a great one that Joan put about teaching her neighborhood kids how to jump over a high bar. And, you know, so there's a lot of great videos out there in terms of seeing tag teach in action with the gymnasts, uh, with golfers, with tennis players. Um, so they can, again, go to Tag Teach International and there's a lot of uh, resource material there that kind of, kind of introduce them to the concepts, see some of it in action, and then they can take it farther from there in terms of learning more and getting certified, that kind of thing. 
So before we wrap up for today, one quick note that might be of interest if you are an Instagram user. So as much of a geek as I am about technology in general, I'm not really much of a social media user. So up until this point, I haven't bothered with Instagram, but my kids were saying that Instagram is a thing, so maybe I should try it out. A couple weeks ago, my wife and kids set me up with an Instagram account, and I have started experimenting with it a little bit. We will see how it goes, but if you're not really into email and would prefer to get the condensed TLDR version of each new post or interview, just search for Bulletproof Musician at Instagram and follow or subscribe or whatever it's called there. And if I'm doing everything right, you'll start seeing things appear in your feed. <laughs>